Endurance sports have been a part of my life for really since I was a teenager. I grew up and I raced mountain bikes in my teenage years and throughout college. After college, I actually got into running, into marathon running, and that transitioned over for several years that I competed in triathlons, specifically long distance Ironman triathlons. And there's a unique thing when it comes to training for any physical event, but especially for a long distance physical event. So take training for a marathon, for instance. It's a thing that a normal program would be probably somewhere between four, maybe five months of kind of workouts that would be put together to help you prepare for one day, right? For one single run, you're working out for months at the same time. But one of the challenges of doing a long distance event is this, you can't just go out and run it to see how well prepared you are. You know, so in marathon training, it's not like every other weekend you just go out and run 26 miles. Like if you were training for a 5K, we'll just go run 5K and see how it's going. And, and in training for these, one of the things as I was studying and working with coaches and realizing is this, is because you're not quite sure how your results are doing, it can be hard to gauge where you're at. It can be hard to gauge, am I doing the things I should be doing? Is my fitness where I should be? to be doing well, to reach my goals that I have. And so what coaches do is they create different kind of workouts that you can go to kind of measure yourself, to see your progress, to kind of keep you calm, to reassure you that all of the training that you're doing is actually worth it for the big day that is ahead. See, if, if, if we don't see, in, in human life, if we don't see immediate results or quick results from something we're doing, it's very easy to soon lose motivation to do that thing. How many people have ever said, I'm going to start eating healthy. They ate like three meals healthy. They stepped on the scale. They didn't see a change and they quick lost all motivation, right? To change their behavior. We need to see results if we're going to keep motivation for our behavior. So what happens to us as people, what happens to us as followers of Jesus when we don't see the immediate results of obedience to God, right? Because sometimes we obey God and it doesn't seem like there's the natural benefit there. In fact, oftentimes in our world, we could look at those who aren't living lives of obedience to God and it could seem from our perspective, hey, they have it better off. And the, the thought could come into our heads and into our hearts, is obedience to God even worth it? Is trying to live a life pleasing to God even worth it? And that's the question we're going to dive into tonight. Is obeying God worth all the effort? Is it worth the sacrifice? Is following God worth it? And since following God doesn't guarantee immediate results, so if we just focus on today, we can be discouraged. And so I would encourage you, we are wrapping up our series wake up call in the book of Malachi tonight. So open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We're starting in the middle of chapter three, in chapter three, verse 13. We've been in this book of Malachi. This is our sixth week. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, I would encourage you to go back and to listen to them, to, to hear the flow as Malachi has, has gone through this book. And as is typical of the other places, it's what we call a rhetorical disputation. 
That's where kind of an argument is made. The rhetorical question is asked back. And then the majority of the passage is God's response to the people. And as we look tonight, we're going to jump in and see three motivations that this passage gives for you and I for obedience to God. Three motivations to continue to live a life of obedience to him. So let's jump in. Chapter 3, verse 13. It says this. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogance blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And so this is the accusation that God makes to the people in their rhetorical argument back. It starts that your words have been hard against me or you have spoken against me. Some translations say that you have tried to overrule me. To which the people are saying, well, how have we done this? Good God, how, how have we spoken back against you? And God responds by saying this. This is kind of the attitude when he says you have said. He's not like quoting someone. But he's saying this is the pervasive attitude amongst the people is this. Is that it says in verse 14, it is vain to serve God. It's futile. It's meaningless to serve God. It's useless to serve God. When they're looking at the results around them, it's, it's useless. That's the attitude of the people. They, they said, what profit, what, what good is it to keep all these commandments? It says to, to walk around in mourning. Walking as in mourning, that to us is kind of a weird phrase because we so often associate mourning with like loss. Like mourning is grief of death of someone. But for them, mourning was something that they were to do to represent a repentant heart before God. And so mourning was actually a subcategory of proper worship before him. So they're saying, hey, it's useless to obey God and it's useless to worship God. Because it just doesn't seem like it matters. Look at their response. Verse 15. It's, they're kind of saying, hey, hey just look around. This is why we feel this way. This is why it feels like obedience to God doesn't even matter. Verse 15 says, we call the arrogant blessed, right? The arrogant, those who go against God actually seem to have it better off than those who follow God. Evildoers prosper, right? Those who are wicked are growing and they seem to be doing well. And this final accusation they not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's this idea of they flaunt evil in God's face to see if they could get away with it. And they do. They're poking the proverbial bear and nothing is happening. And they're saying, hey, look, hey, look, if your God was real, I couldn't live like this and be rich. I couldn't do this and be successful. If you're doing it and they taunt that God isn't doing anything back to them. This cry here of the people is a regular cry that we see in scripture. It's commonly phrased as this, why do the wicked prosper? Or why do the wicked prosper? David cried out a very similar cry from his heart that the people here are feeling um, in their attitude, in Psalm chapter 73, 
It says this, Psalm 73, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, that same word, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so scripture regularly cries out, God, why does it seem, why does it seem like people who don't follow you are not only okay, why does it seem like they're better off? Right? If we've ever wondered if scripture is relevant, how true is this for us today? Because we could see, man, there are people who flaunt evil in the sight of God and they're not punished for it immediately. It seems actually that they are doing well. It seems sometimes that those who aren't following God are doing better than those who are. And so the cry is, God, why do the wicked prosper? God, if this is so, what motivation do we have to follow you? And so if you've ever wondered, when you look around and you see wicked people prospering, you see those who don't honor God, getting rich, getting a promotion, having a family, all these things that maybe you want and you're wondering, what, what motivation do I have to continue to serve God when it doesn't seem like I'm getting the results? The next part of this passage is for us. Verse 16 says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I'd make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Did God hear the cry of his people? Yes. Yes, he did. He heard the cry. And he, he uses this, that, that he's paid attention. He's heard them. He then adds this book of remembrance that he will pull out for them. This isn't like an actual book that God has to bring out, like he's forgotten who his people are. But it's a, a symbol of thinking, hey, if something is so important to write it down, then yes, God will remember it's a sign of assurance, just as those who follow Jesus, our names are written in the book of life. It doesn't mean that there's an actual piece of paper up in heaven with your name written on it, but it's a sign of assurity that God knows you. God remembers you. He looks forward in verse 17 to that day. The day which has already been talked about in Malachi is a term of the future, of eschatology, of the day of the Lord, looking at God's return to earth. The father will look in favor on his children and he reminds them in verse 18, they will see the distinction. They will see the distinction between good and evil when God returns, when Jesus comes to judge the world. And so the first motivation to obedience in this passage is this, is that God sees all and remembers all. God sees all and remembers all. See, when we live our lives from our limited perspective, we just see what's going on around us. We see what's going around us. And when the wicked prosper, when those who don't follow Jesus seem to be doing just as good, if not better off than those who are, it makes it easy to start to make assumptions about life. And we can even make assumptions about God. 
We could say it's not, it's not worth it from my perspective. Or if we start to make assumptions about God, we say, well, if, if God can't do anything anyways, like he would stop this, surely he would. Or we might, we might even say, well, God doesn't even care then how I live. But these assumptions are clearly not true. God cares, God sees, and God remembers all. See, if, if you ever have been in a situation where you had immediate feedback, there was a boss looking over your shoulder, telling you if you're doing something right or wrong. Think of a teacher standing right over your shoulder, watching you do the work, encouraging you. Yep, that's right. Yes, you did that problem correctly. You're immediately responding and you understand, hey, hey, this work is worth it. This is helping me. But what about if you don't hear an affirmation? For those of you, maybe you serve in thankless jobs who no one tells you thank you. Your boss doesn't give you anything. And you're just kind of out there wondering, like, am I, am I appreciated? Am I doing a good job? That's often how the Christian life can feel like. Like we're just kind of out here trying to live life, wondering, is this worth it? Is, is all this effort in following Jesus actually worth it? And this passage reminds us that it is. Because God sees it. And God remembers it. The same temptation to compromise our thinking, like how the people of God were back then, is still very real today. In the New Testament, when it talked about Jesus' return, similar things, similar themes were reminded to encourage the church to continue to follow Jesus. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this in verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the, the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's saying there will always be people who will make fun of you and say, where is God? Where is God? Where is his coming? What difference does it make. And the temptation can be to start to think that Jesus doesn't see how you live. He's not paying attention to every single day of our lives. This passage is a reminder that he is. He sees us and he remembers us. In fact, when we think of future judgments, if you remember the book of Revelation, the, the last book of the Bible starts with letters to the churches. And one of the most common themes amongst all those letters is Jesus says this phrase over and over again, I have seen your works. I have seen your deeds. See, God sees your life. He knows your heart. He sees your efforts for obedience. It's not that it earns salvation, but it's a reflection of the change that he's made in you. And so is obedience worth it? Yes, because in obedience, we're not looking for the approval of the world. We're not looking for the approval of the people around us. But we obey God for one reason alone, because we're seeking after his approval. We're seeking to live our lives honoring and glorifying to him. And so we are motivated to obedience because he sees our hearts. He sees our lives. He remembers us. The passage continues in chapter four, it says verse one, for behold, the day, that theme again, right? The day of the Lord, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Again, this is the day of the Lord looking to Jesus's return to earth. The image of fire is used here. It's been used earlier in Malachi when talking about judgment. If you remember the refiner's fire, and it's an extremely common image in scripture when talking about divine judgment. Fire, not always, but very often was associated with the divine judgment of God. And so he says that he's going to be burning like an oven. For the people of the ancient Near East, that was the hottest fire in their world. That, that was kind of the greatest heat possible that one could think of. And that's the phrase, the specific image that Jesus mentions of his return that God brings. He'll be like burning like an oven. Notice that the sharp contrast here between verse 1 and then verse 2 and 3. Right? Like what, what happens to the evildoers? They will be like stubble. They will be set ablaze. They will be... Neither, excuse me, it will leave them neither root nor branch. It means total destruction. There's, there's no chance of there still being a root there and something growing back. It will be totally destroyed. Not even a branch from the tree on the ground, totally gone. Decimated, you'd have no idea that they will ever be there. When the judgment of God comes on the evil of this world, it will be complete and absolute. But the contrast, verse two, but... But for you who fear my name, that's been a theme throughout this book, the fear of God, meaning the fear leads to reverence, leads to obedience with our lives. Those who fear the son of righteousness will rise. This is an image throughout scripture. Isaiah 58 puts it this way when looking forward to the, to the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 58, 8 says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your guard. This image of a new day coming, a new day of righteousness, of God looking on his people and those who are following him, living lives of obedience to him, keeping his covenant will rejoice in this day. They will rise with healing. I love that phrase at the end of verse two. You will go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's an image that I had to look it up because I'm like, I'm not on a farm. I have no idea what that is. But in their time, it would be common. That, that was an expression of joy, of like a cow, a calf leaping up into the air. It was an expression they would use of utter joy from the people. This last verse here in verse three that we looked at, it's just this picture of that there is no more evil left on the world. It is a world of righteousness. All evil has been removed when Jesus has returned. So our second motivation, our second motivation to obedience is this, is that life is short and eternity is long. Life is short and eternity is long. The contrast, as I mentioned here in this passage, is so vivid. It's so stark. It's one of the sharpest contrasts in scripture right next to each other of this is what happens to evildoers. This is what happens to the righteous. See, on that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, for the wicked, 
It's a day of dread, a day of despair, a day of harsh judgment. But for the righteous, it's a day to look forward to. It's a day to put our hope in. It's a day of vindication for how we've lived our lives, for who we've trusted in. See, there's this contrast and it's all about, are we prepared for that day? Where do we find ourselves on this side? Are we the evildoers in one or are we those who are righteous in verses two and three? I remember many years ago, um, as I was walking to a class to take a final, you remember the stress of finals week when you were in college? And I remember I was walking and I had seen this person I hadn't studied with them, but I asked them as we were walking in, how do you feel about the final? And I could tell that was the wrong question to ask. This person was not prepared. They were anxious. They didn't look like they had slept much. They were clearly ill-prepared. And the irony is this, is that it was one of those classes where the teacher had given us every possible question that was to be on the final. There were no surprises coming. You knew what was going to be asked. All you had to do was to prepare now for what you knew was coming. And because I had, with some of my friends, prepared, I, I, I wasn't worried. I was not scared for what would happen on that day because it would be, in a sense, vindication for my hard work, the preparation that I had in studying. See, as we look to the future, to the day of Jesus returning, if you're scared of that, if the return of Jesus causes you to fear, maybe it's because your heart is still far from him. You're pursuing life of evil, of seeking after your own pleasure. Because for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the return of Jesus Christ, as scripture says, is our blessed hope. It's when we will be made new, when the world will be made righteous. This passage is a good reminder for us to this, that this life, this physical life that we have here and now is not all there is. See, our world is obsessed with temporary pleasures, with things that will, will supply, will bring us happiness in the moment. And so our motivation to obedience now is to think of the future. See, so often sin looks enticing in the moment. When we keep in mind that life is short and eternity is forever, that perspective, that long-term goal of who we're living our lives for, what this obedience is starts to change our perspective. This does this in every area of life, right? If you have financial goals for the future, it will change how you handle your finances in the present. If you have fitness goals or health goals for your future, it makes the decisions that you make today easier. In the same way, if we keep in mind eternity, that this life is short and eternity is long, if we keep that future in mind, it helps us, it motivates us in the present to live a life of obedience to God. So it looks forward to the day that the Lord returns. The passage then of bookends here with these final three verses at the end of chapter four. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The call here in verse four is to remember 
That's not like just to bring to mind again, to, to recall in some sense. But a biblical remembrance is a remembrance that then leads to obedience. It leads to a surrender of our lives. The law, the statutes, the rules, all the similar things, all that had been laid out. He's saying in, in essence, none of what I would have needed to write here. None of this would have been written if you would have just remembered the law of Moses and lived your life according to it. If you had just obeyed the covenant that I made with you, we wouldn't be here right now. So remember these things. He then talks about Elijah the prophet coming before. This is again a look as we saw in one of the earlier passages to John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is identified as one who is like Elijah who has come before Jesus. But, but these figures are also mentioned here specifically Moses and Elijah by name. Because for the people of Israel, they were the key figures, the great examples of faithfulness to God. If you were to ask someone in this time, in this context, 400, 500 years before Jesus came, who are the heroes of Israel, those who have shown faithfulness to God? The answer would have been, it's Moses and it's Elijah. See, Moses and Elijah, if you remember when Jesus was up on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared with him? It was Moses and it was Elijah. And by reinforcing these two at the end of the book, He's highlighting and reinforcing the need for obedience from them to the covenant that God has made with them. Our third motivation to obedience that we are reminded of here in these closing words of this book is that obedience isn't optional. Obedience for the Christian is not like an optional subcomponent of what it means to follow Jesus. Like you can do it or not, but all Christians are this. Obedience is kind of like take it or leave it. No. If we're to follow God, if we're to be in a covenant relationship with him, obedience to him is not an option that we get. It's something that we must do. Obedience and faithfulness are a necessary part of what it means to follow God. Now I want to be clear. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace alone. It's what Jesus has done that saves us. We are not saved by works but we are saved to do good works. Let me say that again, in case you missed it. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. In case you don't believe me, let's go to a couple passages. Ephesians chapter two, right before this, it talks about how it's by grace you have been saved. And then he finishes the, the, the thought there in verse 10 of chapter two. And he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Likewise, Titus 2 says this, Titus 2 verse 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. It's all of Jesus. It's what he's done. Who are zealous for good works. See, we aren't saved by our good works, but we are saved to do good works. 
This last week here at church in our staff gathering, um, a coworker shared how they had been, I think they're the newest married person here on staff. They've been married for less than a year and they just kind of shared just some of the things that they've learned about themselves, some of the things that their life has kind of had to change since they've gotten married. And anyone who's gotten married remembers kind of that first year or two where you're kind of learning things, you're figuring things out and you're changing some of how you used to live because of this new relationship that you find yourself in. See, thinking of salvation, I think is helpful like this. See, if you go into a marriage and think, oh, well, I'm going to marry this person, but I don't need to change anything about how I live. You'd be like, well, I don't think you really get what marriage is. Because it changes you and now you need to live another way. It's the same thing with salvation. When we are saved by God, it now requires us to live a new way. There are patterns, there are things in our lives that must be changed, that must be transformed to honor him, to please God more. Obedience is a necessary part of following Jesus. It's what he expects from us. When he transforms our hearts and lives, it should lead to transformed living. So my friends, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do them. This call here tonight, I hope has been a a strong call of the importance of obeying God with our lives. That it is indeed worth following. Jesus is worth following. It is worth obeying him with our lives. Because just remember this, God sees your life. He remembers you. He knows you. Remember that this life is short and eternity is long. That obedience to God isn't just an optional thing, but it's what we are saved for. It's what we're saved to do, good works. So as we close, I just want to ask you, is there anything in your life, anything, whether it's public, maybe it's very private, a thing that no one would know about, Is there an area of your life that you're struggling to obey God? Where you're resisting his will? Maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe it's an attitude. Whatever it is, I would just encourage us tonight as we close, just to submit that to the Lord. To ask for the Holy Spirit's help in your life, in your hearts. That he would give you the strength to honor him more. To obey him with all that you are. For we were not saved by our good works, but we indeed are saved to do good works. Obedience is worth it. God, we thank you for the salvation that we have only because of what Jesus has done. God, I pray that as this strong call went out through Malachi the prophet to these people, God, that the message on our hearts would be the same, that we would realize the importance of surrendering our hearts to you in every area of living obedient lives to you, that we would look to the future, look to your coming, and it would give us motivation to honor you in the present circumstances of our lives. God, would you show us areas where we are not obedient? Would you open our eyes to sin in our hearts so that we may repent and walk in greater obedience to you? For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.